0: So without further distraction, let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter 8, 2 Kings chapter 8, and last week we finished verse 15. Long ago, God told Elijah, with a J, Elijah, to anoint Hazael as a king over Syria. And when we read about that, you may have thought, wait a minute, Ben-Hadad is king over Syria and he's still alive. Why would we have another king anointed? But time caught up to that prophecy in this chapter in a way that we never would have expected. And Elijah's dead, but Elisha has been the prophet on the scene for some time now. And Hazael, this same Hazael, who's not yet king but who has been anointed by Elijah to be the king over Syria, Hazael had been sent by the king to Elisha to see if the king would recover from an illness. Ben-Hadad was sick. And Elisha told Hazael to tell the king that he would surely recover from the disease but that God had also shown Elisha Ben-Hadad is going to die. And Elisha wept. Not at the fact that Ben-Hadad would soon die, but he wept because of the evil Hazael would do to Israel after he ascended the throne in Syria. And in our study, we concluded that God recovered or healed Ben-Hadad of the disease. But we also read that Hazael, this servant of King Ben-Hadad, killed his own king by smothering him with a wet cloth. Our Wednesday night study in Proverbs chapter 3 dealt with God cursing the wicked and blessing the just And if you weren't here, I really suggest you go back and listen to that if you haven't already, if you weren't able to watch it online, that is. And in that chapter, in verse 33, it said, The curse of the Lord is in the house of the wicked, but he blesseth the habitation of the just. And as Brother Fulton expounded that text, we learned that God does bring evil upon nations. Just like Israel and the United States today. And until people allow that to soak in, then the unbelievers and then those Christians who are very shallow will continue to say, well, why would God let something bad happen to good people? Huh? Boy, their premise is wrong, isn't it? Everyone's a sinner. We're not good people. As Jesus said, there's only one that is good, and that's God. Our country has, by and large, given itself over to wickedness, just like Israel did, rejecting God's word, and it sings God bless America when it needs to fall down in repentance and not sing that at all. God has blessed America, and what has America done? America's spit in God's face, rejected his word. And thank God for the faithful remnant who are still serving God and worshiping, who love his word, who love his son. And for that reason, I believe God's preserved this nation when he could have well destroyed it as Sodom and Gomorrah. And understanding what we learn Wednesday night should help you understand why God would tell Elijah to anoint a Syrian king who would one day do evil to the children of Israel setting their strongholds on fire and slaying their young men with the sword, dashing their children and ripping up their women with child. The curse of the Lord is in the house of the wicked. And our study today brings us to yet another sad event for Israel. Let's learn from it. If you've just joined us, we're in Second Kings chapter 8. Look at verse 16 with me. And in the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, being then the king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. So as one Jehoram, who's here called Joram, began to reign in Israel, another Jehoram reigned in Judah. Uh, Don't let that confuse you. If if you don't remember which Jehoram was which, it's okay. Let's learn from what happened. Verse 17, 30 and two years old was he, that is Joram, when he began to reign, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. Eight years of an evil reign can do untold damage to a nation. Eight years of a righteous reign can bring much good to a nation. But whether a reign is good or evil, depends wholly upon the response the leaders have to God and his word. It does not depend on what political party the leader is from. It does not depend on the leader's promises, how much influence or riches he has, or his persuasive speaking ability. It depends on how the Lord judges the leaders as to whether they are evil or righteous. That's the standard. And that's not the world standard, is it? Whoever made the phrase up, it's the economy, stupid, may remember that during some political campaigns a few years ago. That's really how people judge the leader. Now, an evil leader can bring a lot of harm to an economy, no doubt about that. But just because the economy is good for a season doesn't mean the people in charge are good. God judges them differently. Than man does verse 18 and he that's Joram walked in the way of the kings of Israel as did the house of Ahab for the daughter of Ahab was his wife and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. The first indictment against Joram is this and he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. This is not a good testimony. Listen to what God says, on the other hand, about righteous kings. I'll read from two passages, one in 1 Kings chapter 15 and verse 11, which we've already studied. 1 Kings 15 verse 11. This is about King Asa. And Asa did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did David his father. Now, David was not Asa's biological father. That term is used to describe an ancestor. From the line of David came Asa and so forth. David did as his father. He was a forefather. And then 2 Kings 22, which we have not studied yet. 2 Kings 22 verses 1 through 2. We did study about this king when we studied Jeremiah several years ago. And for several years, wasn't it, Miss Anne? Nelda's not here to tell me how long we were in Jeremiah, but you are. 2 Kings 22, verses 1 through 2 says, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jedidah, and the daughter of Adiah of Boscath, And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. And walked in all the way of David his father, and turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. And as with Josiah, there are still several kings we haven't studied, at least in our study of the books of the kings. Most of the kings who ruled Israel and Judah before Joram were wicked. But the righteous had two things in common. One, they did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Two, as did David their father. So the absence of these two things in the introduction of King Joram is not a good thing. It doesn't say good things about Joram. The second indictment against Joram is at the end of the first one. Look back in your text, it says, And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Here's the second indictment. As did the house of Ahab. Notice the simile here, the word as. In what God said about evil kings and in what God said about good kings, he used the word as. The earthly comparison for a righteous king was David as did David, their father. And the earthly comparison for an evil king at this point in the Bible is Ahab. But before Ahab, who were the evil kings compared to? Does anybody remember? They walked in the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Over and over again, the evil king was said to walk in the way of Jeroboam, The son of Nebat. So why do you think Jeroboam's name has been replaced with Ahab's name here? Well, 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 30 through 33 tell us. 1 Kings 16, 30 through 33. Tell us why Ahab's name supplanted Jeroboam's name in this description of Joram. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. You see that? He not only did what Jeroboam did, but he did worse. And it came to pass, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove. And Ahab did more, you hear that? Did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. So now Ahab has set the standard for evil. Before, Jeroboam had set the standard. And now there's a new standard. We have somebody who is just as evil as Jeroboam and a little bit more, a lot more. Jeroboam was evil. Ahab was more evil, but this did not make Jeroboam righteous. The fact that there was somebody more evil than Jeroboam did not make Jeroboam righteous. Now, if somebody were to argue otherwise, this is very typical of what a lost person will tell you today. When you ask them, do you think that you've done anything bad enough for God to send you to hell. And they'll say, oh, no, I've never killed anybody. And they'll tell you what all they've never done. They don't go through the list of confessions of things they have done, but what they've never done. What they're essentially arguing would be the same logic that you would apply if you said, well, the fact that Arab that." Ahab is more evil than Jeroboam means Jeroboam wasn't so bad. Oh, he was bad. Ahab was worse. But they were both bad. The third indictment against King Joram, if you look back in verse 18 in the middle, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife. It was bad enough that Joram walked in the way of the kings of Israel and further like the wicked house of Ahab but he took it a step further he married the daughter of Ahab and presumably that was also Jezebel's daughter though the text doesn't tell us that but we know if that was the daughter of Ahab she was raised in the house of a reprobate father and mother and probably servants and everyone else. But certainly by those two. Those two parents who had rejected the Lord. In fact, they had their own wicked religion, didn't they? They were Baal worshippers. A righteous king, on the other hand, should never desire a wife from a house like that. A righteous king should not say... Of all the women in this kingdom, I want the one who's the daughter of the most wicked king we've ever had and the most wicked queen we've ever had. That's, that's who I want right there. A righteous king would never think like that. Tells you a little bit about Joram. And I'm sure this woman's friends, this daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, her friends and maybe her family reminded her how great her life would be if she was the queen. Hey, you're going to be the queen over over Judah. I'm sure Joram's friends and family assured him, "Hey, king, you're marrying royalty. This woman was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. You're marrying the daughter of the former king and queen. What a deal." But friend, this is what so many parents do. To their own children today, especially their daughters, and they don't always realize what they're doing. When the young lady meets a young man and comes home and tells the parents about it, one or maybe both of the parents say something like, Well, what kind of work does he do? Is he cute? Does his family have money? But the first and most important thing ought to be, Is he a Christian? Not whether he goes to church. Don't substitute that one for is he a Christian. Don't say, well, does he go to church? Oh, he does. Well, okay, I'll tell you what. Some of the most wicked people I've ever met go to church or have gone to church. And we need to go to church. But the first question is, is he a Christian? Because if he's not, then does anything else matter? And it doesn't, does it? Nothing else matters. So if you're trying to figure out, if you have a... Uh, an unmarried daughter or son or grandchildren on whom you have great influence and who listen to you if you're trying to figure out what should I ask them if they come home and tell me I have found the man of my dreams or I've found the the girl of my dreams well there's your first question right there is he a Christian? is she a Christian? and if not uh, don't encourage them to marry that person don't do it And assuming the answer is, yes, uh, he is a Christian. Now, those other questions are important. The follow-up question ought to be, where does he go to church? What does he believe about salvation? He says he's a Christian. Does he study his Bible? Have you studied the Bible with him? Has he studied the Bible with you? And the, the mistake that many young women and young men who are Christians make today and have for years is believing that they can marry a lost person and convert them to Christianity. Well, if he'll marry me or if I can get her to marry me, then start going to church and then he or she'll become a Christian when it just doesn't happen very often that way. And so you end up with, you won't talk about a mixed marriage. I'm not talking about racial stuff. I'm talking about religion. I'm talking about Christianity. You have a mixed marriage right there, a Christian and a lost person. You have an unequal yoke that the Bible says ought not to be so. And that's where you head it off before the union ever begins. Now, have there been some Christians who married lost people and those lost people became Christians? You better believe it. Have there been lost people who've married each other and both became Christians? You better believe it. Praise God for that. We don't go back and undo that. We don't break down that wall. Many of us in here were touched by that and perhaps those watching. And we're thankful to God for that. But I think if you're a Christian, you would agree with me that that's not the best course. That's not what you want to tell two people is, hey, you guys, y'all are just as lost as a goose in a hailstorm. But I recommend you get married and be like my wife and me who became Christians after we got married. Y'all do that. Don't ever give, you wouldn't. Don't ever give someone that advice. What is the hurry after all? If the young man or young woman doesn't love a perfect Jesus, how are they going to love an imperfect you? Now, Brother Roloff said that many years ago, 40 years ago, and it's still true today. That's a good question. But Joram was not concerned about abiding in God's word and in his will. So he certainly didn't care if his fiancée, who became his wife, was a Christian. And the fourth indictment here against Joram is really the main one. In fact, if you would go back and look at the other three indictments, you might say this is really one offense with three elements to it. The fourth indictment's really the main one. And that is at the end of verse 18. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's the offense right there. That's the the main thing. In Texas, the offense of driving while intoxicated has three elements. And they all have to be present at the same time before a person can be charged with DWI. One is they're operating a motor vehicle, not riding a bike, not on a skateboard, operating a motor vehicle. Yes, it can be a tractor, and yes, we've arrested drunk farmers on the highway before. The second thing they have to be doing while they're operating that motor vehicle is they have to be intoxicated, and the law defines what that is, and they have to be doing it in a public place. So it's operating a motor vehicle in a public place. That could be the Croker parking lot, by the way while intoxicated. Those three, they have to be there at the same time before it is classified as a driving while intoxicated offense. Now, Joram was guilty of the offense of doing evil in the sight of the Lord, and the three elements of that offense, if you want to look at it that way, were, one, he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as did the house of Ahab, that's number two, Number three, and the daughter of Ahab was his wife. Those were the three elements that existed and that were proof that he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, I use the word indictment. And if you're somewhat familiar with our legal system, you may have heard that word and thought, Hmm, I've always wondered what the difference is between an indictment and acquittal and a verdict and all these legal terms. When a grand jury indicts a person for a crime, all that means is there's enough evidence for that person to be taken to trial. That's all that means. It doesn't mean that they're convicted. And if the grand jury does not indict the person, or what we call a no bill, if they don't indict the person for the crime then the person cannot be found guilty of it. If it's a crime, that requires an indictment, which all felonies do and some misdemeanors. And if a grand jury indicts a person for a crime and says, yes, there's enough evidence for this to go to trial, but then at the trial the person is found not guilty before a judge or a jury, then the person cannot be convicted of that crime, even if he did it. But with God, this is not the case. God doesn't have to go through this justice system hoping to get the right answer, hoping that the evidence will show a person did or did not do something conclusively enough to render a decision. When God indicts you for an offense, you're guilty. You're you're done. He's the grand jury. He is the judge, the jury and he is the executioner, all rolled into one. He does not offer probation or parole or alternative sentencing. And there are many lost people, foolish lost people, who will go to the great white throne judgment and who are going to plead for a pardon or probation or as Jesus said, they'll say, oh, look at all of these things we've done for you, Lord. We've cast out devils in your name and done all of these wonderful works. Or maybe they'll just ask God to overlook their sin. They'll say, uh, uh, Lord, you, you know Ahab and Jeroboam, you know all the bad stuff they did. I've never done anything like that. So can you just overlook it? It's not that bad and he won't do it. He won't overlook sin. Yet those same people refused to see the certainty of their own doom as guilty sinners. That didn't cross their mind. I am guilty before God. I have no excuse. I'm a sinner by nature, by choice, and by practice. And they refused also to accept that God placed the judgment for their sin upon Jesus and that God executed his wrath upon that sin so we who believe on Jesus would not be appointed to wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ as the apostle Paul wrote and so to that foolish person I hope it's not somebody in here I hope it's not somebody watching but just in case to that foolish person who really believes that God's going to overlook it or I'll just tell him all the good things I've done. Let me say this. You've chosen your bride in a a manner of speaking. You've decided to stay married to the offspring of Ahab and Jezebel rather than be a member of the bride of Christ by trusting in Jesus for your salvation. Now based upon what we've learned about Joram, the next few verses won't surprise us. Let's look at verse 19. We read about all the evil done in verse 18. And verse 19 starts off with the word yet. Yet the Lord would not destroy Judah for David his servant's sake as he promised him to give him always a light and to his children. God's Yet, saved Judah from destruction. Yet tells us that the things listed in the prior verse were good enough for God to destroy a nation. That's all he needed. He didn't even need that much. But that qualified for the destruction, the total destruction of Judah. Now, why did God spare Judah? in spite of all this evil they'd done. Why did that verse say yet? Because God made a promise back in 1 Kings, and I'll begin reading in verse 31, in the middle of verse 31, through verse 36. 1 Kings 31, and put the letter B out beside that. That means that's the second half of the verse. Through verse 36. Behold, I will rend the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon. Now Solomon was David's son. And will give ten tribes to thee, but he shall have one tribe for my servant David's sake. Now this is the Lord giving this promise to Jeroboam the wicked. He said, you're going to get ten tribes. I'm going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand. We've already studied this. But he shall have one tribe for my servant David's sake. Do you hear that again? Because that they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the children of Ammon, and have not walked in my ways to do that which is right in mine eyes, and to keep my statutes and my judgments, as did David his father. How be it? I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand whom I chose because he, that's David, kept my commandments and statutes, but I will take the kingdom, I'm sorry, Solomon, out of Solomon's hand, because he kept my commandments and statutes, but I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it unto thee, to Jeroboam, even ten tribes. And unto his son, and that would be Rehoboam, you remember, Unto his son will I give one tribe that David, my servant, may have a light always before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen me to put my name there. So underscore, if if you're doing that in your Bible, David, my servant, may have a light always. That's the reason for the yet in our text. Because God made a promise concerning David, he would not destroy Judah. And that light that David would always have, that God promised him, was not just the earthly continuation of his tribe. In other words, he didn't just say, I won't wipe your tribe off the face of the earth and then they'll just keep going until I come and everybody dies. No, the word always is there. The word always is there that tribe, that earthly tribe, as all tribes, is going to come to an end. My tribe is going to come to an end. Your tribe is going to come to an end. So that's not what it was referring to as much as it was referring to a spiritual truth about that light that would always shine. That light was Jesus Christ, the light of the world, the one who's always shined before then. Jesus Christ, whom the Bible says is the root and offspring of Jesse. Now, Jesse was David's father. And he is called the bright and morning star as well. And the only hope you have is that God has not yet Destroyed you. I'm talking to the sinner who's rejected Jesus. That's the hope you have is that God has not yet destroyed you because He's given a light that still shines in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you will not accept that light, the light Jesus, then you'll be destroyed just as surely as God would have destroyed Israel. If it weren't for that light, he had promised them. Only God's gracious promise kept him from destroying Judah. Now look in verse 20. In his days, that is in King Joram's days, Edom revolted from under the hand of Judah and made a king over themselves. Edom revolted. This is what happens... When there's a weak leader on the throne, or in the White House, or in the Capitol, or at City Hall, but particularly on a national level. The enemies which were formerly afraid of that nation when it was strong will now rise up against it when its leadership is weak. Listen to what God said about that. Exodus 23, verse 22. Exodus 23, verse 22. When Moses is speaking to the children of Israel, as God spoke to him, but if thou shalt indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy unto thine enemies and an adversary unto thine adversaries. And then you skip down to verse 27. God says, I will send my fear before thee and will destroy all the people to whom thou shalt come and I will make all thine enemies, listen to this, turn their backs unto thee. What are people doing in this situation when they turn their backs on you? They're running. That's the context here. They're running. And if they're running, what are they not doing? They're not rising up against you, are they? They're fleeing. Because God has sent his fear before you. In other words, to stand before you that the enemies may flee. In a country upon whose head God's blessings have rested, historically, have soon forgotten the Lord. They've rejected his word and he has given them over to their evil desires. And the enemy smells that just like blood in the water to a shark. Israel's enemies took advantage of it. They dare not go against Israel when Israel was strong and the power of God rested upon the nation and the leadership obeyed the commandments and statutes of the Lord as did David's time. But those same enemies are whom God uses to punish his people. When they sin as a nation. Why are our enemies in the United States. Rising up against us. Why are China and Russia and Iran. And many other smaller countries. And groups of people. No longer afraid to mess with the United States. For the same reason. Israel's enemies. Were no longer afraid to mess with her. Edom revolted. And that would not have happened in David's day. In fact, I'll read you from First Chronicles 18, verse 13. First Chronicles 18, verse 13. And here's what it says about David. And he put garrisons in Edom. And all the Edomites became David's servants. Thus the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. Many ways God preserved David. But the one listed here was that he made his enemies his servants. God punished Judah and Israel by delivering them into the hands of their enemies who rose up against them just like Edom did in Joram's day. Now look at the word in verse 20. The word revolted. It said in his days Edom revolted. Look at that word revolted. In the Hebrew language, that word has the idea of breaking away. Think of an iceberg, breaking away. It is also, revolted is also translated as the word transgress in the Old Testament. So when Edom revolted, when Edom broke away, it implied that they were once attached to Judah. Politically speaking, they were. And if they were attached to Judah, to Judah, then they were under the protection of Judah as well. Remember, David placed garrisons or pillars, and that word's also officers. He placed a means of protection in those cities of Edom. So not only did it mean that David ruled over the Edomites and over Edom, but it also meant he protected those over whom he ruled. Those go hand in hand. If they don't, then you have a wicked dictatorship, don't you? If you only rule over but don't protect the ones over whom you rule. So anyone attacking Edom in David's day would be attacking Israel as well. They may as well say, we're attacking Israel. And this was when Judah and Israel were one nation. Remember, under David, the kingdoms had not been split. There were one nation. They were called Israel. Now look back in the text and it says, In his days Edom revolted from under the hand of Judah. From under the hand of. This actually helps us understand even more what it means to revolt. Revolting is breaking away from and that also involves coming out from under the hand of. And this is important. When Edom broke away from Judah... They all Edom also came out from under the hand of Judah. So they broke away from Judah's authority, and therefore they forfeited Judah's protection. You break away from Judah's authority, Judah's not going to protect you anymore. You've now become the enemy to the one who once protected you. In 1950, an act of Congress made the island of Guam an unincorporated organized territory of the United States didn't make it a state, it's a territory. It has limited self-government. It has a governor who's elected by the popular vote. It has a small legislature and it has a non-voting delegate in the U.S. House of Representatives. So that delegate goes to the House of Representatives meetings or can but doesn't vote. The residents there in Guam don't pay U.S. income taxes or vote in our election for president but its natives are U.S. citizens by birth. That's, that's from M, not N, but MPR News. I don't believe anything NPR News has to say. <laughs> now, the effect of this is that if any nation on this planet attacks Guam, that nation may as well be attacking the United States. We're not going to say, well, they're, they're really not our territory. Oh, no, they are. But if Guam ever decides to revolt or break away from the United States and say, you know what, we got this. Thank you for all those years of protection, but we got this. We we want your your soldiers out of here and we'll bring our delegates home and we're going to take care of our own little tiny island. Once they do that, then they would forfeit the protection that comes with that association. Now I'm sure being a benevolent country. We would come to their aid under, the, under NATO or one of those types of agreements. That's, that's a different issue altogether. But they would forfeit the protection that comes with that association. So let's make a really big spiritual application here as we begin to close based on what we've learned about the words revolted from under the hand of. When Adam and Eve submitted to God's authority by obeying his word in the garden, then they were under God's protection. There was nothing going to harm them. There was no bloodshed, no weeds, no drought, no hunger, no knowledge of sin. But when Adam and Eve sinned, they willingly revolted from God's authority. And that protection they had from death and sickness and All of that was over now. Because their revolt not only caused them to break away from God, but to come out from under His hand, under His protection. So, what would happen as a result? When Eve gave birth to children, she would travail in sorrow, and all women after that. Adam would till the ground by the sweat of his brow, it would bring forth weeds and thistles. The earth would be cursed and both of them would one day die. So every person who rejects God's authority as creator, ruler, savior, it all is one package. Has also rejected God's protection and they don't even know that's what they're doing. But in his mercy, and by the way every one of us rejected God's protection, we revolted from God in sin. So if you go to your grave that way, then you're going to go to hell. But God provided the sinner protection from eternal death and separation from him, from that consequence of that revolt, by sending his son to die for our sins. But to be under that protection... To say, I want that protection. The sinner must agree to be under God's authority. By doing what? A bunch of good works? By coming to church all the time? No, but by believing the record God gave of his son. So lost person, be as Judah under David, not as Edom. Don't revolt. Repent. And with that, we'll close. Father, we're so thankful. For those who have come hungry to hear your word, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the spirit of God who is our teacher. And now, Lord, as we enter the next hour, we pray that you would once again bless the teaching of your word, bless our pastor, bless those faithful members and visitors who came to the location where he is. And Lord, I pray that the, the transmission of this message would be uninterrupted and that we would all benefit that the body of Christ would be edified and drawn closer together and closer to you. In Jesus' name.